0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Skirt, a real horror show. I'm your host, John, and my guest this week is someone I'm honored to call a friend, filmmaker and author Polly Chattel. Now, I never know what to say in these introductory sections, so it finally occurred to me when you have an author on the show, you can just read their author bio. So I've got Polly's book right here, and I'm flipping to the About the Author page. There it is. Here we go. Polly Chattel is originally from Birmingham, Alabama, but prefers the wild Emerald Hills of Colorado and Western North Carolina. A filmmaker with a host of award-winning feature films under her belt, she returned to the... You know, this is stuff that we covered in the interview, so I'll skip that. Uh, She's taught film directing, film editing, and screenwriting in the UNC University System, NYC, and elsewhere. Proudly and passionately transgender. Polly lives in the mountains near Asheville, North Carolina with her wife and three vicious and savage but very adorable animals. The Occultists is her first novel. So yes, I'm holding The Occultists right now. I think you should buy it. It was put out by Journalstone Books. Maybe go to their website. Maybe go to polychattel.com. Maybe go to your local independent bookstore here in Baltimore. I would recommend that you go to Atomic Books. It's, it's, a, it's a really exciting book. It's a big adventure. It's very creepy. I don't want to say too much about it because we're going to talk about it in just a minute. But I did want you to know that if you haven't read the book, a large part of this conversation is relatively spoiler-free. There's a very clear demarcation in the conversation where I will say... After this, we're gonna get into spoilers. So if you haven't read the book and you wanna check out what Polly's all about, this is a great opportunity. Um, And if you have read the book, definitely stick around because we get into some plot details at the end that I think, you know, if I had just read the book, I'd I'd like to hear the author talk about. So without any further ado, because that was a lot of ado, here's Polly.
1: As far as writing and the love of books and the love of words goes, it was just kind of always there. I guess I was sort of a precocious reader as a child. I was fat as a child, and I think that had as much to do with it as anything else, as all the other kids are outside by the pool, you know, having fun, and I'm inside reading because I was afraid to take my shirt off. And also I had a speech impediment. I had a stutter. I think John Updike said like having a stutter is is really good for being a writer because it just, it forces you to go inward. You're not one of the popular kids. You're one of the other kids. And so it really forces you to sort of have an inner life. And so that's kind of where I built it from was... That. And I just, you know, I have that sort of egotistical thing of like the thoughts in my head are important and I want other people to know these thoughts too. I have something to say and I want to express my experience. And so you do get this kind of sense of self-importance. It's, it's a little bit of an ego trip to have your words read by other people, that your words are worth their time. So there's a little bit of that. It's it's like half shyness, half egotism. But also growing up in the South, I mean, you're just surrounded by that sort of Southern Gothic thing, Flannery O'Connor, Eudora Welty, Faulkner, all those guys. So there's a whole culture you grow up in, and words are weirdly important in that culture. I mean, writing was always held in esteem. Plays and Novels and short stories were always like something that Southerners aspired to do. I don't know why that is actually. The arts were important in the South in a weird way because it was so rare, I think, that we we held on to it tighter.
0: We sort of shared a, a a parallel or I don't know, parallel, but separated by a few years history in that. Though we did not meet until the days of Facebook, and a mutually beloved college professor of ours, George Enzer, had passed away. And, and That's correct. Good old George. The closest thing that Montevallo had, the University of Montevallo, that was, the college that we both went to, the closest it had to a film department without having a film department was George Enzer. I don't know if it was that way when you were there, but he was it for me.
1: It was, yeah.
0: It was under mass communications.
1: right. I was a film minor in college with George, but unfortunately, it was more from like a film uh, sort of criticism kind of thing, where I would write these 20-page papers about Ken Russell and people like that, and Mm -hmm. it never was like hands-on camera time. It was more like theoretical stuff.
0: Right. Well, George's class was, yeah, more of like a film appreciation course. Exactly. But anyway, that was the long way around, saying that we did not meet until George Enzer had passed. And yet, I found out later you grew up in the same city as me, and you went to the same college as me, but you were just a just a few years ahead. That's so right. it's interesting how, Uh, There is a similar understanding, I think, of growing up in the South during that general time and going to a liberal arts school in the South in a town that could be described as a college town, but only in the general sense that there's a town with a college in. it. That's exactly right. It didn't have the sort of culture of a college town. And so you were sort of forced to create your own culture there, even though you were only like, we were less than an hour away from Birmingham. But growing up in Birmingham and going to school in Montevallo, I always tell people I had begun to feel like one of those pygmies you hear about that doesn't leave a 35-mile radius from the spot where they're born.
1: (laughs) Montevallo, like you said, I mean, it's just this kudzu field of a college, you know? It's in the middle of nowhere, in the center of Alabama. It's hot. It's fecund, as they say. Yes. And of course, that led to lots of drug taking. We did a lot of LSD and a lot of pot and we kind of created our own imaginary worlds down there. And it, it was good, you know, I mean, I was always kind of jealous of somebody who went to like NYU and had the entire New York City right there. But I think there's also something to be said for growing up in the middle of nowhere and reading Romeo and Juliet that day is like the biggest thrill you're going to get all day long. And so it kind of refocuses your brain into prizing these, these writers. I remember I went to school in the late 80s and I would go to the library and literally read Pauline Kael books, front to back in the library. I'd read her reviews and do nothing but read her reviews like all day long. And it was like the highlight of my day was to read Kale reviews. And so it sort of refocused you a little bit onto art and music and imagination, I would say. So I'm I'm actually pretty pleased to have gone to Montevallo. It really puts you in touch with the same thing that the romantic poets had, where you get into the awe and the sublimity of like looking at the night sky from a cow pasture and the sheer natural magnificence of the place just really kind of created this worldview for a lot of us. You know, we were all sort of kind of redneck hipsters, if you want to call it that. We love the hillbilly yeah. and we love the hipster. And it was, a, it was a new thing for all of us. It felt like our own little piece of ground stylistically. And so I think we've um, grown from that. Of course, like Southern literature and the Southern thing, it's now a big thing. It's now sort of this established style. You know, you see in horror circles, it's like a lot of people are coming to terms with the South and the Southern grotesque of Flannery O'Connor. And and uh, you and I were doing that like way back when, you know. We grew up in it. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in a little town called Jasper, Alabama, which is about an hour outside of Birmingham, North. I mean, I swear to God, it must be the most redneck town ever. And I kind of treasure those moments. I mean, you know, the moments hanging out by the creek and the moments driving around in the back of a pickup. And it was a unique experience growing up, like to mix the sort of southern hillbilly with the romantic poet. You know what I mean? You become sort of like the noble. Savage at that point. Mm -hmm. It's a really interesting kind of way to be. And I'm still like that. I still live in the woods. I still go for hikes in the trees every day. And so no, I love the South. I think it's great. I am sad that it seems like we're dragging the rest of the country down. But of course, there's racism everywhere. Uh, Not to change the subject. It's a troubled area, but it's also a wonderful area. I mean, it's the birthplace of jazz. It's the birthplace of rock and roll. It's got so much to give. So I'm a child of the South and a fan of the South. I'm proud to be here.
0: Yeah, I always feel like the South is kind of like my mom and dad or something, where it's like, if it's me and my sister talking, we can we can complain. But if anybody else were to complain about them, I would defend it to them. Yep. And when I moved up to... Baltimore, there were a lot of people who would say, oh, you made it out of Alabama. Oh, my God, what's that like down in Alabama? And I would realize they thought I had lived in a place with a dirt floor. Right. um, And that's not to knock dirt floors. Shotgun shack. You don't understand. I grew up in Birmingham. I am a city mouse. Right. By by Alabama standards, I'm a city mouse. Right. I have always said there's this weird Southern acceptance of eccentricity that you could be in the most backwoods place that a sort of modern progressive person would drive through and be like, lock the doors, roll up the windows. This place seems weird. I don't want to come here. And that town has some weird artist who like nails egg cartons to pieces of wood and paints them up like religious figures, you know, and everybody loves him, you know? Yeah. And it's like that you can only have in, I'm not saying only in the South can you have that kind of eccentric, but I'm saying only maybe if you grow up in the place can you understand how yes, this can be a very hateful place and a very backwards place, but it can also be like an incubator for a, for weirdness. A weirdo yeah, and and let them grow and let them be as weird as a weirdo could ever be. You know, That's I don't right. know if there's anybody weirder than a, if you take the weirdest Southerner. I'm I, I bet they're one degree weirder than just about anybody else. Yeah, remember <laughs> no that degree.
1: podcast Shit Town? I mean, you know, I'm, yeah. I mean, Montevallo was like 45 minutes away from. In that little town. Yeah, totally. And that was the norm. I mean, you know, you know Howard Finster, the uh, the folk artist from Georgia. I mean, everybody loved that guy down there.
0: Which is why coming to Baltimore, it took me a while to get my footing because I, and I still feel like I haven't found a quote unquote scene like the scenes that I've been, you know, uh, helped out by, held up by, whatever you want to call it in, in the past. So I think there is something about That acceptance, that sort of like, okay, maybe it's even finding someone with your similar tastes and attitudes in a place where not a lot of people have them. It makes those, it galvanizes those friendships, and it is almost like a philosophical thing. As I carry forward in life, I'm almost always kind of looking for, like, the outsiders and the misfits, because I really think they're the most, uh, they're the most fun. They might be the weirdest, the most unpredictable, unreliable people, but they're also they're, they're high yield people yeah i mean they've got an inner fortitude
1: you know i mean it's like yeah. swimming upstream you kind of i mean you bond with these people you know you're in a hostile mm-hmm. environment i remember walking down the side of the road in alabama and people yell fag from the side of the road you know from a passing car or something
0: it happened to me so often literally screamed usually from like a passing pickup truck that i i got to where i stopped and i would check like what was it this time yeah. and i'd be like oh maybe it's because my my jeans are a little tight, or oh, maybe it's because I was holding my books a certain way, or you hair know is what long. it's like, or maybe it's just it's just they can smell it on me yeah. that like I'm the someone who's walk. gonna be scared. I'm going to be scared and 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 react the way they want someone to react to that. Yeah, yeah it's, it's weird. It's... I mean, I, I identified as a hetero, you know. I have a child. I'm married to a woman. I mean, I wasn't gay. Like I remember one time I said that I thought Robert Redford was handsome when I was a kid and like every adult was like, "Don't say that." Everybody it's turned no and stared at you. Everybody's going to think this about you, you know. And I was like, "What is going on here, <laughs> folks? He's very handsome, but I like him better with a mustache. Why <laughs> is that wrong?" (laughs) Anyway, so yeah, it's like there's this little voice inside you that's being told all the time, no, you're you're, you're not the right fit for this world. You're not the right fit for this world. You're not the right fit for this world. And you could start to believe it. Right.
1: It's like a baptism by fire. It does help. I mean, when you sort of grow up into those circumstances, you're tougher. It kind of
0: gives you perspective a little bit, I think, too. How many years were you in Jasper versus Birmingham?
1: Well, I had some family in Jasper, and I would spend summers out there, and I spent like a school year Mm -hmm. out there. So I didn't technically live there, per se, but I would spend a lot of time there. I grew up in Rocky Ridge and Hoover okay um, I went to John Carroll High School
0: Jasper is very familiar to me my family had a house on Smith Lake for pretty much my whole life cool so I was up there not every weekend but many weekends out of the summer and I'm sure we could swap stories about that region but as I grew up and would visit that place as I drove through towns like Jasper and Arley which were very near Smith Lake I used to get this weird oppressive feeling I would see a little house and there would be a, a, a rusted uh, trailer or something sitting uh, you know uh, out in front front of the house, or there would be a, a, a big pile of wood that looked like nobody had touched it in 20 years, or there would be a gas station that was overgrown that had closed down. And I I find that kind of like aftermath of somebody's good expectations. Failed dreams. You know, you're driving through and you see something that someone built and it's done. It's old. It's a husk. Yeah. It's been abandoned. It's a place that's like designed for you to get out of it. Right. Your options are limited if you're going to be like true to your hometown, and it's kind of a, for lack of a better term, kind of a dying town?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's sad. I mean, I have a lot of friends who lived there. I don't think I'm friends with anybody there anymore because people did leave. The Smith Mining Company came through and basically decimated the entire area that I used to live. And it was rough. I mean, a lot of people there were pretty, pretty harsh. I mean, you're in the mores of the 50s where you could still hit your kids. And of course, those kids grew up to hit their kids and they were bullies in school and so there was a lot of keen pregnancy and things like that. And or somebody like me who's who's not really gay, but a little different. I mean, I had the girls calling me a pretty boy in seventh grade. And uh, funnily enough, they seemed to know me better than I knew me back then. But it was really sad because I had one foot in Birmingham and one foot in this kind of redneck world. My, my future was different. I mean, I had parents that prized education and sent me to a Catholic high school and to college. Yeah. I was a big fan of Raymond Carver back in the day, back in the late eighties and early nineties. And, uh, I would read his stuff. And then the movie Shortcuts came out. And everybody loved Shortcuts, but I didn't like Shortcuts. Robert Altman moved the stories that he filmed very well. He moved them from rural sort of nowhere Oregon to Los Angeles. And it was like, no, you can't put those stories in Los Angeles. There's too much hope in Los Angeles. I mean, those <laughs> stories need to be in a nowhere town where there's literally no hope. There's no money. There's no way out. hmm I think that dread is a real part of a lot of Southern writers' work, and it certainly is sort of is sort of my work too. You have no other options other than to make your own options. I think that is both good and bad because it does help you to strengthen up and get tough and say I've got to I've got to figure this out. But on the other level, it's really hard to break those societal bonds. You know,
0: so much of what you're saying is pointing to what might create that sort of uh, writerly sensibility of looking for these little details and looking for these little stories. Um, and trying to figure out ways to tell them. Maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, what brought you to write this book, The Occultists, which I think I've just said its name for the first time in this entire conversation. (laughs) (laughs) That shows what a good businesswoman you are Um, uh, and what a good interviewer I am. But the truth is you, you, you dove more into film uh than than you did strictly writing for writing's sake uh, a little bit earlier, correct?
1: I was always a frustrated filmmaker. I didn't really uh play with cameras that much, but I wanted to tell stories through film. but growing up in Alabama it, during the time that I did, it just was unavailable to me. We just didn't have the resources we didn't I didn't have parents who valued that sort of thing so it was unavailable to me. So I did the next best thing as I wrote. And I was the columnist in the Montevallo newspaper.
0: The Alabamian?
1: The Alabamian. Yep. I had my own column. I won some awards.
0: I had a comic strip. <laughs>
1: oh, cool. How, how cool. That's really great. I didn't know that. But uh, yeah, so I mean, you know, I mean, we do what we have to do. You know, honestly, I never felt I was smart enough to write. I mean, I was always intimidated by those guys. I went to grad school in English, and I always wanted to get like an MFA. But again, that was unavailable to me. So i took 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 the next best thing and went for an MA at UAB, University of Alabama at Birmingham. And I dropped out because I realized I wasn't going there. I wanted to create my own art rather than evaluate other people's art. I just, I suspect that I wasn't smart enough to do that. And I still suspect that. So when the digital revolution and cameras opened up around 1999 or 2000, that's when I jumped into film because suddenly the the equipment was available and I could tell stories. My very first movie that I hardly show anybody, it's my first work, um, is called 78, which is the highway that goes from Charleston down into Georgia across Alabama and up to Memphis. And Highway 78 goes through Jasper. And I wrote kind of a Carver-esque, I don't know what you want to call it, like an anthology of stories that sort of intermixed around this one kind of over-commercialized stretch of highway. So that was really my training ground. That was my film school. I mean, I didn't even have fucking film schools to go to. I mean, I didn't have the resources to do that. I was Mm self-taught. I did film for a while. I had some minor successes, had a lot of failure, And I kept hitting against this whole money thing. Like every time I would spend years and years, sometimes one project was like literally five years trying to get money for my projects. And I wanted to be the guy or the girl whose story was being told. I wanted to be the director and the writer. I wanted to be Paul Thomas Anderson. Or Kevin Smith. I didn't want to work in the industry. I wanted to be my own industry.
0: You're dancing around the word auteur here, but my sort of fantasy of being a storyteller led me to that same thing because movies were the, the coolest. You know, movies were the best way to get big ideas across. They were
1: fun. For film, everything was so wrapped around a budget. I mean, a lot of my budgets needed millions of dollars. And I had some people express a lot of interest. I had companies working for years to get some money for my films, and it was great. I mean, I worked with some really great people, but it never happened because there's just a mountain of obstacles. If one actor pulls away at the last minute or just anything goes wrong, this whole mountain of cards comes tumbling down. hmm So I got frustrated with that. And it was just like, okay, I'm not going to move to LA. I've got a family. I don't want to spend my life in a car. So what can I do here? And writing was always there. And I think I'm one of those people who's not really brilliant, but I can do the 10,000 hours thing, like Mm -hmm. really work hard at something until you get good at it, even if you're not really that smart. (laughs) And I think I just kind of did that. I just sat down every day and just said, fuck it. I'm going to write a novel. I don't have any publications. I don't have a book of short stories. I'm not chasing that dragon, but I I have this story I want to tell and it's way too expensive to tell it in a screenplay. And the funny thing is, I actually did write it as a screenplay. It was originally conceived as sort of one of those eight part series, like a limited series, like uh, True Detective or something like that for HBO. It was still the same thing. I mean, you can be like 9.5 on the success scale and still not grab that brass ring because there's just so many sort of barriers to entry and fuck it, I'm just gonna go do my own thing. And so I started writing a novel with no budget. At one point, I had a tidal wave swamping an ocean liner. And I was thinking to myself, there's no way I could do that. But in a novel, I could. It's been a real nice experience because all of my films have made three feature films so far, and they've all gotten awards and done kind of well for the budgets they've had. But they're so fucking compromised. I mean, it's not the movie that I had in my head because I just didn't have the resources. But the cool thing about a novel is there's no compromise. I mean, the thing I set out to do is the thing I did. I mean. This is the book that I had in my head. And it was really kind of thrilling in that way because I felt the limitations kind of drop away. And even though there's like way less money in fiction and way less prestige and you're not a rock star, even if you're semi-famous, it's still better to me because the story that you're able to tell is purer and it's nearer to the source rather than filtered through so many ideas and nets and barriers and money and executives who get you to change this one thing, or somebody wants to cast their girlfriend in it, or they won't give you the money or your location falls through at the last minute. Film was very stressful. I realized I kind of wasn't having very much fun. One day we woke up and there was like 11 inches of snow on the ground. And it just forced us to change our whole plan immediately. And it was like, it, I realized I wasn't having much fun, but in books, you don't have that. You wake up in the morning and it's still the same as it was the day before. And so you really kind of have a lot more control over the story you're telling. And I enjoyed that. And so that's why I want to write more books
0: now. What was the timeline like in terms of starting The Occultist? When did it go from an idea to something you were writing? And like how long did it take between that and when you said, all right, the the, the, the manuscript is done?
1: I think I started it like in 2005, I started writing it or something like that. And then I put it away and came back to it and put it away and came back to it. I got frustrated when my third consecutive film project that everybody was really in love with failed to come to fruition. And this is years and years and years of working. And lots of times these production companies who take you on, they'll say, We love it, but we want to tweak this one thing. And so You're working really hard for no money. After they've optioned it, they're basically like, you're on the team. So we're all working together to realize your idea. So you're working for free, dude. Mm -hmm. For years, I did that. And it was really frustrating. And so I started focusing more on the book. I kind of had to learn to write again. I mean, I'd forgotten about it. I think from the beginning when I started it, seriously to when it got published it was like four years and there was about a year there after it had been accepted that it just sat there because you know these guys have a schedule and you fit into their schedule and it doesn't happen automatically so I was able to go on to book number two for like the last year or so it's hard because when you write you have no idea at least when you write like a spec novel and you're starting out you have no idea if this all this hard work is going to pay off I mean you might just be throwing this 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 hard work and all your time into the wind it's a real sacrifice. And so to actually have it come out and have all of that time you put into it be worth something is a a really great feeling. And so the team at Journalstone who who said yes to me, finally, they will have my eternal gratitude because they helped me realize a dream that I'd had for so long that I knew that this story was worth telling. And, you know, it's weird, too, because I was not in the horror zone. I mean, I don't read horror a a whole lot. My wife was actually involved in a workplace shooting. It kind of broke me from horror for I'd say about 10 years because even though I love Stephen King and I loved horror and I love science fiction and fantasy for about 10 years I couldn't read it because we had had horror in our daily lives I mean we didn't need to go look for it we had it and so the workplace shooting she was traumatized and I was traumatized by proxy and so I wasn't in that horror gang it wasn't something that I did I didn't read horror short stories so I'm still not really up on like the latest practices and I'm I'm sure a lot of horror writers read me and go, this is where I was when I was like 16. (laughs) And that's fine. I mean, I come to it from an outsider's perspective. I mean, I'm just doing what feels good to me. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't.
0: It's all I've got. What influences would you say really informed this story? I'll speak for all of us writers now that I'm a published writer.
1: I think we tell the story we want to read, you know, I think it really is that simple. We, we write the book that we want to read. And if that book happens to have murders and beheadings, then that's cool. And if it doesn't, that's cool, too. So it's no more complicated than that for me. I mean, I just wrote the book that I wanted to read. And I like those books that give us a little bit more. I mean, you know, having grown up on Southern fiction, uh, William Faulkner said, the only story worth telling is the heart in opposition with itself. I think Stephen King said that, you know, he spends the first hundred pages of his books just, you know, allowing you to get to know these characters. And then he puts them through hell and you care about those characters. So I think that's kind of paramount is you want to identify with these people. Yeah. Um, and you and you want to go on that ride with them. So everything kind of happened on its own. I mean, I didn't plan it. I was lucky in the sense that my screenwriting skill allowed me to basically put the story together in one fell swoop. Like I didn't, I didn't need to wade my way through it. I had it. I had it from the the very beginning, I had this four-part narrative that he would go from here to here to here to here. And it was really like a, just a question of how to connect all those points up. I hadn't read Harry Potter. There's no Harry Potter in this. I'm not a fan of J.K. Rowling. As a matter of fact, her recent things about trans people, fuck J.K. Rowling.
0: Can we talk about this for a second? I don't care how political we get. Let's do it. Let's say there's a person who could just shut the fuck up and go off and count their money and everybody would love them. Right. Just about. And yet they have to open their mouth. They have to, like, reveal this ugly side of themselves. And so J.K. Rowling doing this whole stuff with, uh, I guess people don't know the term "terf," T-E-R-F, but a trans-exclusionary radical feminist. Am I getting that right? You're getting it right. But it's so wrong. <laughs> it's it's just this this branch of feminism that is masking transphobia and 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 worse under the guise of protecting women from a feminist standpoint. But it's it's such it's such bullshit and it's such it's so hateful because it's fueled by all these wrong, toxic impressions of what trans women are. It's true. It's just so clearly regressive, and it's so shocking to see somebody who seemed to have a couple brain cells to rub together. I mean, whatever you think of Harry Potter, she created this world that a lot of kids were able to inject themselves into and find acceptance in, and find lessons and messages of acceptance in it. Right. What a terrible thing to do to your own legacy as a writer, and also what a a clue as to what a terrible human being you are, that she continues to double and triple and quadruple down on this. So yes, it, it, fuck JK Rowling, I agree.
1: <laughs> I respect her and I know she's done a lot of good things for progressives in general. And I do believe that she's acting in good faith. I think she's gotten some really awful intel. I think she's listening to these uh, sort of British feminists who basically are making up lies and feeding them to her and she's accepting it. They're all verifiable lies. And I don't think she's listening to trans people. I do think she is thinking she's saving young people. So in her mind, she's doing the right thing at the expense of her own career. And I just wish she would listen to some different people who actually have facts and science on their side rather than animosity. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she's she's now helping Republicans and doing some other awful things. So yeah, fuck her. She's bad.
0: Say goodbye to your memories. Oblivion!
1: <laughs> ah! I forgot how we got on her. I'm ready to
0: forget her altogether. But I actually was going to bring up Harry Potter independently of the topic of J.K. Rowling's transphobia because I was wondering if, in some ways, the lead character in The Occultists, Max Graham, if he is in any way a reaction against the sort of... Chosen one plotline that we're so familiar with from you know Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Harry Potter, and so on. Because while Max is at the center of this this story, that's that's way larger than him. Right. He never seems to have the kind of leg up that a a true chosen one. Would have, uh, And as I was reading, I, I was constantly thinking, oh, Polly's really sticking it to uh, uh, Chosen Ones.
1: If you really read closely, he kind of chooses himself. I mean, he works really hard to get where he's at. He's the one who volunteers every single time. And other people are actually saying, no, do not do this. And he does it anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, the Chosen One is this idea that you your father is important and your father is, is the big guy behind the dark side of the force. And he doesn't have that. I mean, he's a, he's a plebeian. He's a working class kind of proletariat guy, who chose himself to step into this? So it's sort of anti-chosen one. And I think I make the point in the book that, like everybody has these powers if they just want to actually nurture them. Mm-hmm. So it's not one of those stories where, like you are special and out of these millions of kids, he's not really that special. And as a matter of fact, toward the end of the novel, spoiler, um he does his very best to step away from it. He doesn't want to be special. He wants to be he wants his normality back. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not really, An acceptance or a refutation of the chosen one, it's really just kind of ignores it altogether. Mm -hmm. It's just a story about a kid from the middle of nowhere who is in the right place at the right time, meets the right people, and then he does everything he can to further his own power within that organization. Then, of course, things go wrong. And the novel happens.
0: It's kind of the 10,000 hours premise brought into this supernatural world where it's like the reason people notice him is because he's putting in the time. He's working at it. And he's taking it seriously. Yeah. He
1: he works really hard at
0: it. Yeah. What do you think of as the story of the occultist or the, the log line?
1: I think of it as a young boy who finds that there's a secret society right under his nose that can empower him. And he's intrigued and is really loving it until he finds out their true motivations which is very alarming. And he decides to rebel against that and they come after him because he knows things about them that they can't have him know and be out there. And it becomes this sort of chase. It's actually kind of funny because when I was writing it, I realized, you know, I think I came upon it in a Wikipedia entry. I'd never read any John Grisham, never seen any John Grisham movies. But I think I saw in the Wikipedia of The Firm, It's the same fucking story. (laughs) It's about a lawyer who gets recruited into this organization. Things are really great. You know, he can't believe his luck. This organization is almost, you know, so great it can't be true. And then lo and behold, it's so great that it's not true. They're actually a very evil organization. So he goes on the run. He does everything he can to bring them down um then the big finale happens let's not spoil it for anybody but basically it's the same story it's the firm right. set into fantasy terms and i didn't actually plan that i've never read the firm i don't i've never seen the film but the structure the bones of the story are exactly the same um so hopefully tom cruise will come calling soon <laughs> but yeah no it's the same thing and it's a very archetypal story i mean um a series of like 70s paperbacks i used to read called blade And every one of those is that he would be transported into this other world. He would find like a civilization. He would come to know them, come to know the world. Then he would come to know that these guys were actually the bad guys. Then he would switch over to the opposing team and fight against his initial friends and hope to actually bring them down. It's sort of the same structure with the occultists.
0: I think that's a common structure that a lot of stories have. It's a good way to show a character who enters a world and then they quickly discover how little they know about that world. But at that point, they're they're swept away. Yeah, In some ways, it reminded me as well of like a serialized story in the sense that not like it's the perils of Pauline or anything, but Max is kind of a miserable character in a way who goes from one bad situation to another. Uh, Even if he thinks he's finding comfort, you've designed a story that that kicks him out of that complacency.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, in my heart of hearts, it's. It's really um, only a boy's adventure story. I mean, it's no more complicated than that. It's sort of a dark fantasy Mm -hmm. is what I call it. I don't even call it horror. It's a boy's adventure story. It's escapist. It's vicarious. It takes you to fantastic places and you sort of learn a little bit about history and you learn about clothes of that time and you learn about the carriages and you feel this kid's fears and his doubts and his successes too. And so I think I think that's kind of what reading is at its core is it's, it's escapist. We want to fall into this other world and just and forget about our own troubles for a little while. So there's hardly any metaphor for anything else in there. It's very straightforward. It's a very innocent almost naive book of just telling a good fucking story. Mm -hmm. Like one of the purest feelings I've ever had is when I was a kid in Jasper and my, my old folks, my grandparents, um, They were napping, and I had a couple hours to spend by myself, and I would go sit in this little warm patch on the carpet in the sun and open up an Edgar Rice Burroughs book, one of those old John Carter Warlord of Mars books. It's really no more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. It's trying to give somebody else that feeling of like, wow, I get to spend two hours with this world. Of course, there's a lot of research. I mean, there's really the whole history of the Western Hemisphere of magic. We get into like Eastern kind of spirituality a little bit and So hopefully there's some things to learn there. I'm particularly proud of the African uh, magic we put in there. Um, But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's just a boy's adventure story, just hoping to give somebody a really good time.
0: I'm glad you mentioned the historical research aspect. I feel the research oozing out of... uh of this book. There's a lot of period detail. There's a lot of sort of historical characters that I think you've sort of turned into your own characters to use for your own purposes. Totally. But there is that, even though it gets into supernatural stuff, it feels like a tangible backdrop. And you have to do research because you
1: don't want to say somebody is talking on the telephone and then there's no telephone invented until 1928 or whatever, you know? So You have to get your details right. That's really important because then you can sort of forget about it, Mm -hmm. you know, and you can focus on the characters. And so it does become sort of the bedrock upon which the story and the adventure of the story stands. And they're almost even little Easter eggs. Like if you can put a little secret nod towards some idea or bring out some little factoid that only a few people know, it's going to create a, you know, um, a sense of realism toward that, that brings them in as well.
0: Yeah. One of the big areas that I noticed your research coming into play was just in terms of the fact that when you set your story was a sort of heyday for both spiritualists and for stage magicians. Mm -hmm. And then you add underneath that, this current of true magic that uh, it fuels the supernatural side of the story, but just in terms of the way the modern imagination looks at it, I mean, we might think of of stage magicians as performers and spiritualists, perhaps as as con artists. Sure, um, but in in the time when when the occultists uh, uh, takes place, uh, they were they were celebrities.
1: Yeah, I hadn't read uh, a story that really delved into that, and I thought it was sort of fresh territory in a way to really explore it um, on mm-hmm. that level. But yeah, the more I got into it, the more I realized that that the way illusionists, i.e. stage magicians, see spiritualists, they're frauds, you know? Um, as a matter of fact, a lot of what Houdini did was to expose these people. Um, and alternately, a lot of what Arthur Conan Doyle, the guy who wrote Sherlock Holmes, he was a big proponent of it. Yes. So th- there's the Order of the Golden Dawn. And of course, Yates was into that. And then um, Aleister Crowley took it over later on. Yeah. And I knew that it was ripe for for retelling. I mean, I know it's not, it's not a cool era. As a matter of fact, I think a lot of filmmakers sort of shied away from it because it's a weird in-between era. It's like, it's like, it's like after Victorianism and yet World War I hasn't yet started. It's like a golden age of of colonialism. It's the last little bit of of, of peace before the horror of World War I comes down. And so I knew it was kind of an unexplored territory and all the magic and all the Stage magic and the illusionists versus the uh, spiritualists. So it was fun.
0: It's a pre modern world kind of thing, uh, Polly. I it think was. It's, it's tantalizing to set stories then, but I also think that kind of fin de sieckly, if I'm saying that correctly. I think you are. People that felt that they had lived through the millennium, you know, people that felt like the world was this, like in 1904, that combination of thinking both that, that the age you're in is the height of something, right? But also the age you're in is the end times kind of at the same time, I think is an interesting thing. And so to go back in time and realize that people have always sort of been that way, even though global connectivity really does, I think, change our brains. It changes the way our synapses fire.
1: Oh, absolutely. The world is very much smaller now than it was back then, you know, and back then the idea of some lost city of the Sahara, now we can just be like, oh, you know, our satellite technology tells us it was over here. Well, I mean, back then it was a thousand years ago and a thousand years ago back then was a long time ago. Yeah. You know, it's really... It's really, it's really trading upon that sort of pre-modern sense of wonder. You know you see it in Indiana Jones where they go to Tibet and the little the plane flying over the map over to Peru and things. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have 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 played with it, but it's so much fun. You see it with uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong. You know where there's mm-hmm. still places on the map that are unexplored, where you could go to Tibet, and Tibet felt like a long way away. You know, now we go to Tibet and they're on TikTok.
0: Even when you go out to Nebraska in the story, that feels like a million miles away from Georgia, totally, where Max grows up, and he's been having this kind of small town existence before that. And later, when he goes to New York, that's right. You write beautifully about his perception of New York, and there's a scene where he has been in hiding and he emerges and he sees the city differently than he did before. Right, Partially because it's winter, but I think also because he's he's grown mentally since he saw it last. That's right. Like, I came from here and now I'm here and I've heard of this place and it seems like everything in the world is happening here. And I came from a place where it seems like nothing in the world was happening there. That's right. Again, I think that sense of wonder you're talking about, you know, maybe it was more palpable back then than now, but it sure is fun to sort of tap into a time where you could believe that mystery is just so much more prevalent and wondering things was so much more possible. Whereas right now, if you're wondering anything, it means you didn't do a Google search, you know?
1: I know, I mean, um, as much as we've gained through the internet, we've lost something too, you know? We've lost that sense of wonder and that that sense of having to work for knowledge rather than just looking it up, you know? I mean, of course, I would rather live today and if I have cancer, I have a better time of getting cured, you know? (laughs) Right, But but still, I mean, William Hope Hodgson, I mean, you had, I mean, even people like Robert Aikman, I mean, Mm -hmm. he's just, he's the master of unease, you know? Nobody will ever do unease, you know, any better than that guy. He can
0: write a paragraph about somebody, like, setting out a bowl that has two oranges in it, and, and, and you'll... You'll be like, that's the scariest fucking paragraph I've ever read. I know. I'm so
1: fucking creeped out right now. I know. It's (laughs) it's crazy. I mean, those guys are great. So we are standing on the shoulders of giants, and I mean, all we can do is really, you know, you know, uh, sort of contribute to what they have already created. Mm -hmm. I've said this before, but I spent about a year writing this novel. As if it were written in that time. Like, I wrote it very Algernon Blackwood. Um, Algernon? 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 Um,
0: I think it's Algernon. Algernon.
1: I don't know, know, man. I'm from Alabama. What the hell do I know?
0: Let's just call him Algae.
1: Algae. Algae. (laughs) At the same time, I realized that not many people are reading his works nowadays. We like things a little faster paced and a little more accessible. So it took me a while to kind of retool the whole thing to be a more modern story. Because it was very definitely... You know, about that era and told as if we were of that era, like a very sepia toned prose.
0: I find myself writing in that mode if I'm not careful. It's fun. Partially because I've read so much stuff from that era, but also because I'm kind of I'm like a vocabulary nerd and I like sentence structure. Yeah. And I had a friend of mine read a story of mine and say that it felt like it was written by a school marm. So, what I often do is if I'm writing something and I catch myself doing that, I either change it. Or I'll say to myself, like, you know what? I'm going to come up with a motivated reason why this story is, like, there's a person who's out of time who's telling you this story or something like that. Absolutely.
1: But the action is so removed. Like, you don't really feel those kind of visceral, horrific moments. You don't really, you know what I mean? No, that's true. It's so removed and so academic and so abstract that those moments don't come off as well. Like, I would rather read something out of Stephen King's Night Shift about drinking crappy beer then some of that stuff. And it really does lose something in the translation. I think you have to sort of acknowledge where you're from, unless you want to do some kind of weird academic exercise, like a Lynch made the movie Eraserhead. And it feels like a movie made in the 1930s, right? unless you want to get sort of anachronistic with it. But at the same time, it has its uses. And And one of the shorthand ideas I always found in my screenwriting was you sort of mimic the lead character's state of mind. Like if your lead character is nervous and jumpy and terrified, then the story and the style is nervous and jumpy and terrified. And if your lead character is laconic and laid back and chill, then the story and the style is laconic and laid back and chill. And So it's one of those things that you can find a kind of a shortcut in your tone by mimicking the state of mind your main character is at. And that's why I always tried to bring it back to this sort of honest prose. I mean, I always felt like Max was just a straightforward, honest guy. And so I always knew that, you know, it might not be scary. It might not be quote unquote good, but if it was honest, I couldn't go wrong. Mm-hmm. don't get caught up in trying to create an effect you can't create or or that you don't have the ability to create. Just keep it honest. Have a really great you know, string quartet instead of having a shitty symphony.
0: What's it been like having the book out there in the world after all this time in your head? I mean, it's different from an album or a movie in the sense that people go home with a book, it might be a long time before they finish it. You've been getting much feedback? I'm
1: proud of it. And that's kind of all you have at the end of the day is like, you do the best you can and let the chips fall where they may. And I like it. It's the kind of book I would like to read. And there's people out there who would hate it. And there's other people out there who love it. And there's other people out there who think it's a decent try, but not that great. And, you know, I mean, it's my first novel. So I know I made some mistakes and I really have a long way to go, particularly in in describing the internal lives of people. Like one of the things I think is the problem with the novel is it does get a little screenplayish in the sense that it's more concerned with external um, events rather than like a psychological novel would so that's my next goal for my next book is to delve deeper into the psychology of the characters and and you know make a, a a really effective psychological novel because of course that's what novels do so well that film can't is get inside people's heads and so that's one of the major drawbacks of this is I was still you know having to learn how to write and I may have overdone some things and under done some other things. But overall, I think people like it. You know, I couldn't be more happy with it. I love the company I'm working with. They're so great. My editor, Scarlet, my other editor, Sean, they're both just amazing people. I love the cover art. I was prepared for like a big fight with the cover art because I've seen some amazing books have some really shitty cover art. And so I'm real happy that my cover is nice. The guy who did the cover is so talented and I feel like he caught kind of the vibe of the book and um was real ingenious in terms of how he laid it out. So I couldn't be more thrilled with those guys. I just, I mean, there's sometimes I just pick up my own book and read randomly from it and it's a thrill.
0: Do you have any intention of returning to this world, to these characters?
1: No, I mean, unless somebody says, let's do it and here's a lot of money. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, I wrote a finished novel. I did want to leave it a little open-ended because I just like that kind of stuff. The novel, here's a spoiler, the novel ends on a little bit of a downbeat mood that he's he's got an unpaid debt through one of the characters in the book, and he doesn't know when that call is going to come to actually sort of work his way through his debt. But at the other hand, I mean, it feels done to me. I mean, it's a, mm-hmm. it's, it's like a one and done. But again, if somebody says, hey, man, we loved your book, and we want you to write two more, and here's a lot of money to do it, I could probably find a way to make two more stories out of that.
0: Well, I like what you're saying there, because I do think that the modern age, we're so used to franchises and trilogies and series of things. uh, More of that. If you liked it, there's more. Right. That I like the idea. It used to be that a movie could have an open ending or or a book or a story could have an open ending, and it would be like, this is a story with an open ending. Right. That's what we call this. Yeah. But now if a story has an open ending, it's like, ooh, it sets up a sequel. you know. And it's like, no.
1: It's part of a franchise. And I
0: do agree, even though I asked about returning to it, I I asked because the the, the book does leave a few plot threads kind of dangling. But I think they're the kind of plot threads dangling that I remember from my childhood when stories, you know, when I wouldn't know if there was another one planned or it wouldn't be so easy to find out information that, you know, now I get weary whenever I hear something is like part one of a planned five book series or something. And I kind of go okay I kind of just wanted a story I just wanted something that was gonna you know put me on a on a path and get me there I know but to be clear I'm not suggesting that the occultist feels incomplete in any way it's the kind of open-ended that I like it just suggests there's more story that happened after the narrator stopped right and in fact you you have a wraparound in 1937 with uh, Max looking back at uh, 1904 yeah it really does suggest a lot has happened that we weren't privy to and I think um, you know, in, in a weird weird way, that's part and parcel of your whole idea that there is just a larger world.
1: It is. You know, you know, a lot of stuff happens out of the frame or off screen, as it were. And, you know, and that's the point. I mean, life happens off screen. Life happens outside the frame. So I just wanted kind of a melancholy ending. I wanted it to be true to itself rather than sort of having to paste on a happy ending. Um I thought Max deserved it, and I thought Harriet deserved it.
0: We talked a lot about Max. We haven't talked about Harriet. Is she a favorite character of yours? It feels that way.
1: I do like Harriet. Yeah, Harriet. I'm I'm, you know, I'm proud of Harriet. I I feel like I you know, I really tried to write a three-dimensional female character who who grows and changes and it's as much her story almost as it is his. Yeah. Um and she does grow and change and we get to see her grow up a little bit. And of course, something horrible happens. I like the bittersweet feel. I like, you know, you know happiness is a sad song.
0: Well, I think especially if it's a fantastical story, like to have it rooted in that uh, relatable human behavior, it always makes that type of story yep. have more potency to it. You know? right. And I think the messiness of it, what you're calling bittersweet, is like, yeah, it feels more lived in. It feels more, again, that's a great way to make it feel relatable is to have like, every victory is kind of a pyrrhic victory and every defeat still has its own little ray of sunlight shining through it. That's right. Is there anything else you'd want to say, any themes we didn't really get to about the book that that feel like you'd like to speak to them? Yeah,
1: there's one thing. I'm kind of sad that I left this influence out of the author's note in the back, but there was a book called The Orientalist by Tom Reese, and it's a biography of a guy. He's called The Last pre-modern Man. He's a writer named Alev Nusenbaum. And he had a persona that he used to write novels in Nazi Germany and did some other things. But he was a guy, he was born in Baku and was sort of in that Caucasus region. And I took a lot from this guy's worldview because... He was fascinated by the Orient. He was fascinated by the whole idea of the deserts and Persia and jeweled scimitars. And it really was the thing that kind of brought my awareness of that stuff to life. I mean, for some reason, I've always had that kind of fascination. I remember when um, um I never knew my grandfather, but... One day I went into his things and I discovered he, he had a fez, one of those hats. Mm-hmm. He was a shriner, I think. Yeah. And I used to play with his fez and there was a jeweled scimitar. And it kind of awoke this idea of the Orient as this mysterious place. And of course you get into John Crowley's uh, tetralogy. Um, Egypt was his first novel. And he really gets into this idea of sort of this alternate history that there was magic long ago, and now there's not magic. And it all originated in the the Middle East, basically. And so I just really grew up fascinated by that region. And I love North Africa. I recently got back from Spain. I was in, in the south of Spain and really enjoyed all the Arabic influences there. And there's something about that that just really sparks my imagination. And I just dove into it in this book. And so I was real happy to sort of scratch that edge. Like Ray Bradbury said a long time ago, write what brings you pleasure. I mean, just dive into your own self-enjoyment. And that's kind of what I did. And I think it's good advice, you know, because it keeps bringing you back to it. It's a magic place. So whatever makes you feel wonder or feel magic or feel Excited, go toward that thing because it definitely is is its own sort of magic and can keep you moving forward when you are in doubt.
0: Well, I can't wait to see where you take your creativity next. I'm I'm definitely a fan. Well, thank you. Um, and and thank you for for coming on this show and breaking down your book. It might sound silly, but I am vicariously very proud of the fact that you have finished this thing. Yeah, man. And and especially that you found such a great place for it to land. Journalstone, uh, the publisher has has some really great writers on it. You're, you're in good company there.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I was really careful to sort of choose my partners, and those guys are working with some of the best writers in the field right now. And I was just like, okay, if they're good enough for those guys, they're good enough for me. And I was in the right place at the right time. And I had a a sympathetic ear in my friend Scarlett. So yeah, I am just uh, very thrilled to be working with these guys. I think I'm really lucky to be here and I don't take it for granted. I only hope that I can uh, work with them again in the future. Those guys are serious uh, writers. They're serious story lovers. And Doing some great work right now, and you know it's kind of fun because I'm now finding myself in this group of writers. There's so many amazing people. There's there's Emma Jane Gibbon. There's Sarah Reed.
0: I'm loving her collection uh, Out of Water, by the way. Yeah. yeah, isn't that great? Every one of her stories makes me feel so wrong. It makes me feel so like uncomfortable. Yeah,
1: yeah, very inexplicable stuff. You know. Yeah. Um. No, but I mean, it's a it's a thrill. It's a real thrill. I just wish. I mean, so many writers are struggling. It's really hard to make a living as a writer these days. And it's it's kind of sad because it's it's a hard world to be in sometimes because if you sell five thousand copies, you're like doing great, but you can't make a living. That's why so many of us teach or we're librarians or we're postmen. The economics of writing are hard, let's put it that way. And so it's hard to justify the hours and the weeks and the months that you put aside to work on stuff because you're thinking, you know, here I am ignoring my, you know, twelve year old son, but I'm not gonna get a dollar from it. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it's work that's worth doing, you know, just, just being able to express yourself and tell your stories and get this stuff that's inside of your head outside of your head is is its own reward so um yeah I, I i love it and i hope to continue as long as i can and it should be said too that i'm not i'm not some 20 something i mean i'm old now <laughs> so my novel should you know it should be fucking good you know i've had decades right. to work at my
0: craft i love that you can be any age in an in a book flap photo you know what i mean Yo, Like yeah it, it almost it almost helps if you look like you've experienced a little bit more life <laughs>
1: It's true. There's very little ageism in, in fiction, which is great. I mean, in movies, if you're not a 27-year-old genius, then you're old.
0: And this is the part where the scariest thing in the world happens. Ooh, spoilers! No, seriously, after this, we get into some plot specifics. So if you haven't read the book and you want to preserve all those surprises, this is where you jump off. And so I want to let you know, go to your local independent bookstore and buy The Occultist's Um, If you don't know where your local independent bookstore is, you can go to IndieBound.org, put in your zip code, and find where it is. Once you've bought the book there and you've read it and you love it and you want to tell the world, then you can go to Amazon and log in and leave a review because that actually does help authors get some visibility. But do not give them your money. Uh, They're just a bunch of uh, one percenters laughing at you from the tops of their golden toilet bowls. Don't do it. Independent all the way, baby. Um, (laughs) God. (laughs) Anyway, here's uh, here's the spoilers. When uh, the moment when Payne and uh, and Harriet die, yeah, was the moment where I was like, oh, Max is going to be alone, yeah. in the final stretch of this story, you right. know, like that, and it's and he's gonna have to really go for it. On his own, and that this 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 Harriet character, who seems like in a different story she would have been the protagonist, you know, throughout the book, it's almost feeling like Max got the spot that should have been hers, right. and it almost feels like even as a reader, you sort of feel like this really should be Harriet's story, right? But often in a story like this, you look for like what was the tragic flaw that prevented Harriet from making it to the finish line that that somehow the absence of that flaw uh, allowed Max. To make it, do you know what I'm saying? Like th- I do, feels like that's a real writerly decision to make. Like who's going to be there at the end? Who's going to be standing around at the at the curtain call?
1: Yeah, and you know some of those stories that don't have much teeth. I mean everybody everybody's there at the end, and it's a happy ending, and we all love it. Um, But I wanted this story to have teeth, you know, there's, Mm -hmm. it has bite to it. And um, yeah, so I knew, I knew she was going to go away and be killed um, early on. And, but no, I'm, you know, I'm proud of the dynamics between them. That's what I mean when I think that I'm possibly a little okay at writing female characters. Maybe it's the gender thing I've got going on, but Max definitely is a sensitive kid that lacks a lot of those sort of typical macho male attitudes, you know, and he definitely is the beta of the two of them. Mm -hmm. And I like that, you know, it feels modern. It feels true to life. You know, it felt honest again, to use that word. And so, um, yeah, his love for her is kind of um, unrequited. You know, he it's a love story at the end of the day. He she dies, he doesn't. And he basically spends the rest of his life pining after her, um, even dreaming about her.
0: Well, they share a moment of intimacy under uh, Madame Z's fur coat that is <laughs> yeah. almost like a mirror scene to the moment where she saves his life and they're trapped in a little bubble and they're kind of yep. huddled together. It's not like Max doesn't have any integrity and any strength, but in that moment he would be dead if not for Harriet. And the way that you illustrate that by showing just how devastated everything is around them, that they basically are in the middle of a fire and she creates a little magical bubble around them that keeps them alive. Right. It doesn't keep them from from being burned and, and and the worst for wear. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, you know, she is the reason he survives and and uh, you know, she keeps coming back around. She's she's She's, you know, she's introduced very early on and he's worried about her through the whole book. And later on, they become close. And it feels like, honestly, the whole book is a love story. I mean, the very last scene is about him having to, re- you know, say goodbye to her.
0: And Really, it's about the openness these two characters have for each yeah. other and how safe they feel around each other, which for Harriet is maybe even more meaningful because she seems the more cynical Yeah,
1: she's more guarded. But for him, you have to remember, I mean, he's dealing with like extended grief and PTSD, you know, so he's just having to work his way through all of this stuff. And I mean, I think I think that's as important as anything else is the depiction of grief and your family dying and, and, and the world you knew is now gone forever. And so, and, you know, he's being ushered into this new world. And there's tragedy there. And there's horror there. And there's sexuality there as well. And you know, of course, they're both young and, you know, their hormones are raging and you create one sort of element of magic, but the rest of it is is very real. It's very authentic. In a sense, he earns her respect. I mean, she she didn't respect him at the beginning, but now he's been through a lot with her and she sees that he's capable of 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 a lot. And so he earns her respect toward the end and he revels in that as well because he respects her so much. And I think, I think that's one of the things, I mean, maybe I'm a little bit ahead in writing about men and women because I've seen it from both sides, or at least I have a little bit better perspective. So I'm able to kind of look from her point of view as well and create some psychological real from her character and so it feels good in that sense I mean I've felt modern and real
0: and, and right there's a lot of funny memes out there about the way men write women oh my like, god she boobed into the room most boobily as her boobs were boobing <laughs> Even great writers do it like that. It's really sad. But also to put you into that box of like, I'm if I'm a female reader of this fiction, I have to filter out this nonsense. The
1: male gaze.
0: Some of your character descriptions, they, they really go in the other direction. Like with Madame Z in particular, I think it's really interesting how certain attributes of hers are described as very masculine or what we traditionally would think of as masculine and right. others as very feminine and very matronly. And it's That's like right. these things we call spectrums. It means everybody's on it. Yeah,
1: well, you know, for so long, I mean, fantasy in particular has been written for adolescent boys. I mean, you had the Frazettas and the Conans and the women with the little thongs. I mean, what's happened recently is there's there's writers of color coming out, there's LGBT writers, and so you're getting all these different perspectives, you know? Um, There's a lot of great women writers who are changing the landscape. And so we are getting more of that, quote unquote, female gaze, if you want to call it that. So it's really great. And of course, I mean, like Stephen King said way back when, I mean, I would say most stories are almost like the I guy. You write about yourself. You write about the I guy. And Max, of course, is very much like me. He's a he's a confused and conflicted young sensitive soul probably there is a little bit of trans stuff in there just because i myself was trans and you know i hadn't figured it out but i definitely was looking at women a little differently than some of my boys i wasn't into the tits and ass i was into their brains you know imagine that so it was it was a little different for me but yeah you know i really i really reveled in in the idea that maybe i was creating a character with a different point of view even though he wasn't trans, he's not trans, and Madame Z is not trans. But she has certain aspects of that spectrum.
0: Well, moving on to the broader conflict in the book, there are two factions of uh, practitioners of magic. The Fakers and the Aurora. The Fackers is how I pronounce Fackers. it. But the Fackers versus the Aurora. There's two sides. There's the group that want magic to be used to kind of subjugate and to create dominance and That's like right. use it to its utmost. And then there's people who want it to just be part of the world and, and, you know, almost like an augmentation on reality, but also yeah. a secret society. There's people who want to keep the power secret, I, I guess because it could be misused is kind of what's implied. And then there's the people who seem like they're intending to misuse it. They're intending to use it, you know, to, and you could sort of see the appeal. You could have had a different story where the secret people seem spookier and more evil than the people who want to be public with it. But I think in this story, you kind of show that. And, and you shed that notion early on. It seems like we're siding with the right people, but we actually are starting off the story on the on the quote-unquote wrong side. Yeah, it's, it's weird
1: because I've always been, you know, I've always been, uh, say, fascinated by hermetic philosophy and all of that stuff. I mean, if you read Shakespeare's The Tempest, you know, it's all throughout The Tempest. And I love that idea. And of course, you get into the Shriners and you get into the Freemasons and you get into stuff like that. But I realized not too long ago that those guys are fucking racist as hell you know those guys mm-hmm. are the rich privileged hierarchical male dominated white dominated you know you know sort of the good old boys of the past and i, I yeah, you know, i realized that i didn't share those values i i wanted i wanted everybody to have that power not just certain people at the top you know and Mm -hmm. So I wanted to kind of refute that tradition. I mean, I've learned a lot about um, hermeticists and stuff like that. And the way they treated women were horrible. And the way the Freemasons treated women were horrible. As a matter of fact, I shot a music video in a Mason's Lodge. And there was this huge uh, kind of ballroom area that women hadn't been allowed to go to at all. As a matter of fact, one of the Um, the times that we shot in there, it's one of the first women to step in that room in like 80 years. And I'm not kidding. And then you go to their room. They, you know, they had the wives room where the wives would congregate. And it was like a fucking walk-in closet,
0: literally. I think that the idea of a secret society in that boy's adventure vein is easy to sort of like Imagine it's cool, it's neat, it's secret.
1: Romanticize it. But
0: the truth is, the reason those societies are secret is because they're they're excluding people. Right. I mean, we can have fun in the world of magic and say that magic needs to be kept secret. But but in real life, uh, yeah, secret societies, guys in back rooms making deals. They were just trying to keep other people away from the table.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And I don't know. One of the things that happens in the occultists is that by maybe breaking away that establishment. Uh, uh, in the hierarchy, you are making room for, for other cultural ideas to creep through. One of the
1: the great joys of writing this book was I was able to delve into the history of African-American stagecraft and get into the the old African-American illusionists who crossed America. They were doing, like, they call it the Chitlin Circuit in the South, and they did the Sawdust Circuit out West, and... Mm-hmm and there was a real tradition of those guys and they had their own their own traditions and their own way of looking at that craft and, and then of course you had like vaudeville coming out with like blackface and things like that and it's really it's really sad i mean if you if you delve back into the history of racism and classism and privilege In America and all over the world, too. It's not an American phenomenon only, certainly.
0: We kind of perfected it in in the sense that our whole success was based around this morally untenable system of of treating people as less than human.
1: Exclusion.
0: We got to the top of the heap and then crowed constantly about how awesome we are and about how free we are. And so, yeah, it's like America has the like the perfect storm of of being that bad and the hypocrisy involved in that, and then the pride over it that's like a lie that we told ourselves to sleep at night.
1: Yeah, for sure. And that's why I, I was really happy to write The Occultist, because it does get into that sort of exclusive mindset and the sickness behind secret societies and the hierarchical viewpoint. I'm on the boards of some women's groups, and they make a point not to be hierarchical. It's like they don't want that. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a communal-led experience. And so... It was really nice to kind of dig into that thing and and refute that and show that to be bad. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with Max. I mean, he ends up like a chef. He works in a hotel as a cook, you know. He's a he's a blue-collar guy. He never escapes that world. He's not some king or lord of anything. He just he wants to just go back home and sort of be left alone. It's a very old archetype. Just the The plain, simple guy who ends up saving the world because he's got to. He doesn't want to. He has to. So yeah. So it's you know it's fun to play with these tropes and these ideas, and it's fun to reject them when you want, and it's fun to put them to use when you want, and to kind of play with the expectations of those things. And storytelling's fun, man. You're creating your own world and your own mythology, and it's just highly recommended. If you if you can sit down for a year and write a novel, please do because it's a lot of fun.
0: There's two other little points I want. Want to get to. And one I just wanted to say, I think there's something funny, and I think you must know this, uh, and I feel like you use this very well in your story, the expectations we have. And when we meet Peter Sylvester and Addie Sylvester at the beginning of the story, they're very likable, they're very charming. You can imagine the world where they would be that constant voice of like adult acceptance for the character. The Gandalf. And, and, and Yes, Gandalf. But I got to thinking, it's funny how if there's a mentor or a benefactor in a story like this, I I think to myself, okay, they're either going to die or they're going to turn out to be evil. There's no way you have a character in a story like this who comes in at the beginning and is nothing but helpful and nothing but good, who doesn't either, that's a good sympathy death midway through, or they are evil. You know, and I felt like I was kind of playing that game in my head of like, well, I know the Sylvesters can't be who they seem, but then he goes off and he meets all their compatriots, and they, you know, with the exception of a couple characters, they all seem like. I mean, you're painting kind of a quirky world, that Stepland School. Is this, it's not quite the place where you go to learn magic. It's also a place where a doctor is putting uh, goat testicles into men's nutsacks. <laughs> That's right. And it wasn't clear to me. I was like, that has to be a historical detail. Did you find there was some doctor that was actually doing that? Actually, yeah. I
1: mean, he's kind of famous. His name is, goodness, I can't remember his name now. The name
0: you're looking for is John R.
1: Brinkley. But the book is called Charlatan. And um, he was a famous guy and he lived in Kansas. Actually, he invented the radio kind of thing that we know today because basically he would cut men open, drop goat gonads into their testicle sacs, and sew them up and claim it was for virility. And what he did is he invented a radio show to advertise that, but he needed content. So he put country music on the radio just so he could you know, have the commercials. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a crazy story. His name—his um—his name escapes me now, but it's John R. Frankly, he's a famous guy of the twenties. Actually, is when he is when he was around. It was one of those things. I mean, it felt kind of like uh, John Irving and his uh, Cider House Rules kind of thing, where there's just there's so many eccentrics at every point. You just want to keep reading just because these characters are so fascinating. And I did that a lot, basically. I mean, you can look at Madame Z and understand she's Blavatsky and. You can look at um, the Durga character, and he's sort of a stand-in for uh, Krishnamurti. Mm-hmm. Um, and even toward the end, the the Theodosius guy, for, for me, he was always based on Gurdjieff. So it's kind of fun to play with these historical characters and use them for your own benefit. And uh, so that's what I did with the character of Stout. And also Peter is actually a real guy, too. Uh, the whole thing that started this was I read that there was a hermetic society that moved from Scotland to rural Georgia, and they set up camp to become sort of the eastern band, um, if you will, of this uh, tribe to sort of create like a mystical society over here. And um, the guy was named Peter Davidson. He was a real guy. He used to play Scottish reels on his on his violin. So this is all like historically accurate. It's just historically very weird.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I knew that there was some kind of weird tale there.
0: We talked earlier about how you view this story as a, as a one and done. And, and one of the things that's, that's really testament to that is the fact that you, you seem to take a scorched earth policy towards your, your environments that you create, like the Stepland school that we, that we first encounter in this and all the characters there, um, they're utterly decimated. Uh, and, and that seems to be a permanent state.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: And there is always the door open for one of them to have disappeared into the ether and returned from that. I think that you, you know, that would be something to play with. But yeah. death, death means something in this story, and I was glad of that because I, as much as I liked some of the characters and didn't like to see them go, I, I even like less. If that's a sentence. Um, when when a, when a writer tries to get currency from killing a character, and then by the end they are back. You know that always feels to me cheap. Uh, it can be motivated, but it should be one in a million where that happens.
1: I agree. I agree. I mean, you see it a lot in YA fiction where 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 these consequences aren't really consequences. You know, and so I think there's a satisfaction when you have a serious consequence, and that and you know, and that character is gone. Mm-hmm. You see it in The Shining with a Halloran. You know, uh, a Kubrick kills him, you know, and that character is just fucking gone. It's a coming of age at the end of the day. It's about a kid growing up and learning how to navigate his own terms and the terms of the world, you know. I think that is horrific. I think that is where the horror comes in is this this idea of finality, the horror of of when somebody goes away, they
0: stay gone,
1: you know. Mm-hmm. Unless they're a reanimated corpse or something like that.
0: Right. And even then, there is, which you do have one of those as well. I do. Um, A revenant. Well, before we wrap up, I did want to ask you about a couple of the characters in this book who are sort of like monsters that you created. One is uh, the Moorlander. And um, she seems to be something of a, like an avenging angel, perhaps on men on behalf of women. Yeah. Because what we see her do when she kills Sig, this total boar, um... That uh that you introduce us to in the early chapters of the book. She decimates his manhood as well as killing him. And I was just kind of wondering what the mythic underpinnings of that might be, because she seems to kind of exist outside of the, the rest of the story. Like no one really controls her, right? I mean, maybe you summon her, but when she comes around, someone's going down. Uh, and and that's about all we know.
1: Yeah, yeah. She's 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 impeachably scary. Um, yeah, um uh she is a succubi, of course. She's a succubus, which is a kind of a sexual monster that takes female form and, and kills men. And there's also uh male versions of that. Incubus, right? I think it is, yeah, yeah. But you know, they But well, that goes
0: like to biblical mythology. I mean, that's like that's like a super old idea, the idea of the succubus. That's like a, an ancient demon kind of.
1: It is, it is. And of course, I I you know, you know, I call her a pisacha There's so many crazy little demons and things that we haven't really explored um, in fiction much at all, you know, and I just kind of found something that felt like her. But yeah, she's a succubus. And the Tom Howland guy is also one of those types, but he never gets really sexual, but he's he's a similar type being.
0: You allude to his otherness. Uh, Max can just tell he's not human. Like as the story goes along, he's more and more sure that whatever he is, he's not human, but you yeah. never put a fine point on it. Yeah, that's right. And, and yet he is a physical being. I like that Tom Howland could be brought down by a stanchion to the head. Um, you know, to me, that merging of the, the visceral with the supernatural is where you get your, your, your juice, because as we've said, stakes and consequences, it can't—even the, even the bad guys— can't be all powerful or you lose a little bit of that physicality, yeah. that sense that this is a this is the real world that we're
1: in. Yeah. Well, you want to have surprises. As a storyteller, you don't want to fall into these kind of recognizable patterns of like, oh goodness, we knew he wasn't going to die really then. And so sometimes it's fun to actually make them actually die then and surprise the reader and make the reader kind of sit back and take notice and go, huh, something's going on here that I haven't encountered before, which is this sort of reality of things that happened that I didn't anticipate, you know? And Mm -hmm. I think, I think it does create that verisimilitude, which then of course creates a more pleasurable reading experience. You don't know what's going to happen next, basically. So sometimes the, you know, you know, the good guys do win, they have a minor success. Sometimes they have a major setback,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, it has that kind of, um, Feel of real life, which is sometimes messy, and if you have messy fiction, it's a little more fun, a little less, uh, say, predictable.
0: Well, the last thing I'll mention to you is the is Mister Splitfoot, who I think is very creepy and very eerie throughout the story. And we're presented to him originally. He's mentioned in the context of this séance, which I think right out of the gate, you have a little girl bleeding out of the eyes. You know, right. you have this horrific moment that is very, uh, very telling of how physical the 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 supernatural is going to be in this story, that it's going to have physical manifestations. There's going to be blood. And Mr. Splitfoot is played very much as a demonic presence and an evil presence. And then late in the story seems to have a kind of moral ambiguity. And then there's even a devil's bargain that he strikes with them at the end. And I was just thinking like, you know, whether that was intended or not, I was like, oh, I get now why Mr. Splitfoot is able to be scary and then sort of switch to being kind of like cajoling and, And helpful in this way that might even be deemed as he's not so bad, but he still seems wretched and awful. (laughs) Mr. Splitfoot is sort of some representation of the devil and the fact that Max has this favor hanging over his head. that It's the mob deal. It's the deal with the devil. Someone says, one day I may come back to collect. The Faustian bargain. I'm sure Max on his Worst days or his, you know, those dark nights. Wonders like, was could I have done it some other way? Did I have to make this deal? Right. Because now I know the other shoe is going to drop. Right. And now I know. So it's like we see that he's kind of a haunted man. Yeah, like that he's lived a life of solitude uh because maybe of this quality that he has. It's like the rhyme of the ancient mariner or something. Someone yeah. who's marked by this other occurrence and is now doomed to sort of live in that that space.
1: Yeah. The Black Howard character says something like, There's no devil. He's not the devil because there is no devil. You know, if if there were a devil it would be it would be better because then we would know that, you know, there's order in the universe.
0: Right, right. There's good and evil, which there doesn't seem to be in this world.
1: Exactly. I mean it's 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 ultimately like a chaotic and different universe. And that may be the scariest thing of all is like, there are no true laws. There are no, you know, up and down. Everything is just sort of relative. And um, even Mr. Splitfoot is relative. And at one point, you know, our character Max... Here's Mr. Splitfoot talk about, well, I've been told I can't do that. And Max is like, who the fuck tells you to do that? And (laughs) and that creates this idea of like, well, there's somebody behind Mr. Splitfoot and then there must be somebody behind that guy. And it gets very recursive, you know, it gets very mathematical. And the true horror is that we live in an abstract, indifferent, cold universe where there is no up and down. There is no good and bad. There is no right and wrong. And it's all relative. And uh, he has to sort of learn to live in that universe. And he does pay a very heavy price for what he has gained and what he's lost. And at the end of the book, he's still waiting for that other shoe to fall. And it's it's dark. It's really dark.
0: Mm-hmm. And in fact, this is one of the things I think people like with all his problematic bullshit and all the temptations to just throw Lovecraft out. But he did step outside that Judeo-Christian moral binary thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: It would be a comforting thought to think that there was some order, you know, to this chaotic world. And that the really scary thing is like, whatever that heat death of the cosmos that that no one can, you know, no one can comprehend. Yeah, like yeah. That's that's the thing that we should, that should really strike fear in our hearts because you can't put a name to it.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, you know, when uh, Kubrick famously adapted The Shining, he was like, well, ghosts are actually optimistic. And Stephen King was like, how are ghosts optimistic? And it, he says, well, it means that we have life after death. I mean, it, it creates this sense of order in the universe when really there is no order. And that's, that's the truth, you know, you know, most scary thing of all is that everything kind of feels sort of random and we're here for just a little while and then we're gone. And I think horror kind of helps us come to terms with that. You know, it helps us come to terms with our own mortality and our own sort of futility in the face of of death and pain and um and all these horrible things like disease. And so I think it's good to put your characters through that because it's almost like a vicarious way to come to terms with it yourself, you know. And if you see that Max can sort of live with that uncertainty, maybe we can too. So I think that's the power of stories is that we're living vicariously through these characters and if we identify with them and feel their psychological processes to be realistic, then we kind of have already been there. We've 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 ridden that ride and we're able to process things a little easier ourselves. So that's the meaning behind that. Yeah, so Mr. Splitfoot is sort of the one creature that freaks all of them out. He lives beyond order, whereas they kind of exist in this uh, world of black and white and good and bad. And you have this this sense of levels and, and levels beyond levels. You know, in his existence, there are no levels at all. It's just this crazy mass chaos, and uh, that's, that's what scares everybody the most, I think.
0: Again, it's a little bit like the Moorlander exists outside of their order because Peter uh, Sylvester thinks... Okay, this is clear cut. She's working for me in this moment. And it's like, nope, that's nope, right. Nope. You don't get to control this. Like once yeah. you bring it in, it's it's kind it might change its mind and decide to eat your face instead. <laughs>
1: yeah, she's like a great white shark, you know. She she's kind of all appetite. That's all she's got. And so if, you know, whoever whoever wields her appetite is is on top. So yeah, no, I loved writing her. She's kind of fun. You know, she's a beautiful woman, but but you don't want to mess with her.
0: When you write about her disappearing into the shadow, I think it's under a sycamore tree. That's right. And Max knows the the shadow. It's his. That's outside his house. You know. So he knows this this place. And like the fact that he's looking into the darkness, like. He can tell that she disappeared into the darkness and he gets the sense that she's just beyond his vision, like still able to see him, but he can't tell if she's gone or if she's waiting. Right. I kind of think that like that feeling is, I mean, that feels like a mood that you were trying to sustain throughout the whole book of just like, once you know these forces are out there, you can't unknow it. And you, you, you're you on a different path. Again, it can be morally ambiguous. There's a point where he and Harriet stay afloat by by beating and robbing people. And they don't really pay consequences for that. I mean, maybe cosmically, but it feels as though like, no, that's just what they had to do. In this moment, and we don't think they killed anybody, but we, you know, you could have easily had it go really bad. Yeah. So I think it's interesting that there's nobody who really sits on one side of the moral divide in this whole book.
1: Yeah, for sure. That indeterminate feeling. Again, it feels very much like real life, you know. It does, it does kind of prepare you for these feelings of, I don't know if this is good or bad. It just is, you know. I think I was careful in the novel not to kill anybody during that moment because what happened is I actually had them kill some people earlier on and I had some beta readers and they were like, no, man, you can't do this. You can't have the good guys kill somebody. So I did back off of that one little, um, fact, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, all throughout the book, I mean, you have the good guys doing bad things and you have the bad guys doing good things and you have the other guy who's super indeterminate. And at the end of the day, it's kind of like life, you know? I mean, Mm -hmm. there's things that we all love about ourselves and things we hate about ourselves and we just have to learn to live with it.
0: that was Polly. Have, have I mentioned that you should buy her book? It's called The Occultists. Have you heard about this? Um, have I mentioned that if you do buy it, you should get it at an independent bookstore? And if you're in Baltimore, you should, you should direct your dollars towards Atomic Books specifically. It feels very familiar, like I've said it before. Anyway, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Gianni w, That's G-I-A-N-N-I-D-U-B-Y-A. And my music is on Bandcamp at sci-fi.bandcamp.com. That's S-I-G-H F-I-G-H.Bandcamp.com. There's a new album called Recent Patterns of Demonstrative Behavior that you should really check out. In fact, one of the songs from that album is playing under my words right now. Isn't that convenient? Otherwise, just remember, for more episodes of this show and others like it, subscribe to FYIZ wherever you get your podcasts. I got nothing else. You know, we should probably get out of here. I will be waiting. I'll be waiting up all night for you. We've got power at the rendezvous. We've got power at the rendezvous. The generator's loud, but it will do, it will do, it will do. At the rendezvous.